This is an AMI podcast. The couple times that I've tried to put on mascara, I get it on and then I put my glasses on and it smears up my glasses. Are my eyelashes too long? I don't understand. Jenny Bovard and friends share the funny and awkward moments that come from life with vision loss. I'm simply here to tell you some real stories in a real way from my own personal experiences. Low vision moments, new episodes every month. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. No one can deny that the 2020 U.S. presidential election was a bit of a roller coaster. Fractious debates, allegations of voter fraud, and a global pandemic all mean that this race was like none before it. As the dust settles, it's helpful to spend some time asking about how people with disabilities fared during the campaign. Were the issues faced by people with disabilities put on the agenda? Are candidates willing to work to resolve some of the pressing concerns faced by Americans with disabilities? But perhaps most intriguing is the realization that no matter the odds, voters with disabilities were, and are, determined to have their say through the ballot box. Today, we look back on the 2020 U.S. presidential election campaign. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joitha Gupta and I'm very pleased to be with you today. My guest today is Philip Polly, who is the Policy and Practices Director of RespectAbility, a nonprofit organization fighting stigmas and advancing opportunities so people with disabilities can fully participate in all aspects of community. He educates leaders at the federal and state level about best practices to expand opportunities for people with disabilities. He joins us from Arlington, Virginia. Hello and welcome. It's good to have you on the program. I'm so delighted to be here with you today. Philip, it's been a long election and you've really been in the thick of it. So now that it's all pretty much over, um, how are you feeling? Um, I am ready to get to work in the new year with the new Congress, the new administration, um, to work to ensure that the issues that mattered most for people with disabilities that were discussed during the campaign are followed through. I will also say that people with disabilities have been very deeply impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. More than one million workers with disabilities have lost their jobs. Um, Many people have had to resort to unemployment insurance to try and get them through this year and um, we need to get them back to work and we're going to need leaders in Congress and in the White House who are committed to making that happen. Well, it sounds like you're ready to, you know, swing into action here. I thought you would say I'm just ready for, for, for a bit of a rest. But in any case, uh, tell us a little bit about respectability report. So it's really under the umbrella or the osmosis of respectability. Uh, When was respectability report established? What is the mandate? 
So the mandate, to explain, so the Respectability Report is our organization's nonpartisan blog about the intersection of political and disability issues. We launched the blog actually way back in 2015, around the time that I started working for Respectability, and Respectability as a national organization was founded in 2013, really drive home the message that one in five Americans have a disability and our issues matter fundamentally in the political sphere. So our blog reflects news and updates as they happen. They include information on um, how candidates respond to disability issues and whether or not they have accessible websites, whether or not they put out campaign statements that talk about voters with disabilities. One of the things that we did this year, as we did in 2016, um, four years ago, was we released a series of 50 nonpartisan voter guides that included statistics on the state as well as links and information about where the candidates stood on our most important issues. That's quite an achievement. Uh, in Canada, we like to say that at least one in five Canadians lives with a disability. It's somewhere in the vicinity of about 22% of the total population. What kind of numbers are we talking about? How many voters have a disability? What percentage of the population lives with a disability? So in the United States, about one in four Americans has some form of disability. And I will say that mm -hmm. the disability community has only grown because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Both mm -hmm. people have um, lived through the virus and have may have acquired a mental health condition dealing with the stress of 2020. Um, the Rutgers University did a study um, back in October and actually found that there's about 38 million eligible voters with disabilities. And so that is a lot of voters out there who, you know, I think in some cases proved to be a decisive factor in the election. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you wrote uh, on the blog is that Joe Biden decided to uh, bet big on disability and won. That's a quite a big statement. Uh, what were you trying to say there? Well, what I was trying to say there is that really the 2020 election was unique in so many different respects, but as it relates to people with disabilities, this is really the first time that we've really seen sustained effort on the part of a national presidential campaign to get the disability vote out and to get mm -hmm. our issues part and parcel of their plans for um, the future uh, the future and their administration. It was interesting. So back in 2016, um, Hillary Clinton, um, Secretary Clinton, when she was running, she hosted um, a couple of events that talked about disability issues, that talked about um, the impact of the loss of the uh, Affordable Care Act, if it happened. Um, she talked, you know, occasionally about disability issues, but there was no real sustained effort from the campaign to go out and get the disability voter um, out there mm -hmm. and involved. That was fundamentally different this time. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, we saw the way back in the Democratic primary early, late last, late last year, we actually saw the candidates um, from Barney Sanders to Elizabeth Warren actually putting out policies, detailed statements, um, really starting to make disability part and parcel of their rhetoric, talking about voters with disabilities in the same breath that they would talk about African-American voters and women voters. And that was really something that was notable. And when Joe Biden secured the nomination to be the Democratic nominee, um, they actually launched a disability coalition within the campaign. They actually hired somebody on their staff who had a job title about disability community engagement. And that was really extraordinary. And that individual, you know, got together, worked with um, senior leaders in the disability rights field, um, hosted online events, held mm -hmm. fundraisers, um, and actually back in May, 
um, there's a big announcement from the Biden campaign that they were going to release a comprehensive disability plan that reflected both the importance of addressing issues of access to health care and to get people with disabilities to, um, back to work, um, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, protecting um, the rights of people with disabilities. And that was really remarkable. And it was really different. At the same time, um, the outgoing president's campaign did not engage in any of those types of um, in any of those types of outreach activities. And so mm-hmm. it was really it was really a remarkable difference from what 20, what things were like in 2016 and now what things were like in 2020. Mm-hmm. I know that you had a chance to uh, conduct a number of polls in the lead up to this election to really try and get a sense of the issues and the concerns faced by voters with disabilities. You've alluded to this already, uh, Phil, in our previous remarks about the pandemic and how employment has been a big factor. Uh, What does the polling tell you? What were um, voters with disabilities concerned about? How confident were they feeling about their life chances during the pandemic? Well, I will certainly say that um, a a disapproval of President Trump's performance, especially around COVID-19, was over twice Mm among uh, people with disabilities. Um, For voters with disabilities, COVID-19 and the economy were the single most important issues that drove them to vote. Um, Interestingly, we, in our polling data, we look at both voters with disabilities, but we also look at people who are family members or loved ones of voters with disabilities. And there was a subtle difference Mm -hmm. there. Uh, Voters with a family member or a close friend were actually more likely to list healthcare as an important issue. And I think that shows that, you know, a uh, a parent may be concerned about their student with disability who, you know, maybe, you know, have a distinct health risk um, from mm-hmm. COVID or um, might, you know, lose insurance later on in life. Um, interestingly, mm-hmm. naturally, um, it was really uh, very pleased to see that, you know, across all demographic subgroups, um, a solid majority of voters believed that it was very important that congressional and presidential campaigns address issues that were important to people with disabilities. Um, and I will say that I think part of this participation among voters with disabilities was really driven by the fact that there was such an emphasis on early voting and mail-in voting. Um, our polling of voters in the battleground states actually found that um, nearly half of um, our community had already voted by the Friday before the election. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about whether the pandemic might have made it a little more difficult to reach out to and engage with some of these voters with disabilities. A, a lot of the conventional means of getting people together, like a, a town hall, for example, weren't really available to you or to anyone else. Did the pandemic create any spe- specific or unique challenges for you? Um, oh, it definitely did. Um, uh, so there's two things with that, and they're really both related to accessibility um, hmm. as really kind of an early sign of um, the Biden campaign's commitment to accessibility issues. Um, they had a lot of accessibility features added to their website. And so what is accessibility features on a website? Um, it could be something as simple as captioning on videos or something called alt text on pictures because, mm-hmm. you know, websites can be strongly visual. And if you're a person who's blind, you use screen reader software to be able to interact with an interface. And such features have, um, in campaigns past, been largely lacking. Um, And the fact that, you know, there was such an emphasis on a web presence, um, that accessibility features were very, very important for getting the message out there about this is a candidate who is committed to disability issues. Um, I mentioned before that um, disability um, community engagement work that the campaign did, um, Mm -hmm. and it was really neat to see that the accessibility features offered in their events were universal across all other kinds of fundraisers and um, 
events. There was captioning on video. There was options for um, ASL interpretation at pretty much any um, event that you went to. And I think that that created more accessibility and more engagement. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I will say that this also raises um, a challenge that is out there is, um, as I'm sure some of your um, listeners are aware of, in Georgia mm -hmm. right now, there is a runoff campaign for the two Senate seats. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, neither the Republican candidates nor the Democratic candidates have accessible websites. They have no captioning on their videos. There is no options for ASL in their virtual events. Um, and that's a big problem if you are a candidate who is committed to the issue and wants to get voters with disabilities on your side. It is indeed. And one of the things that I find striking about Georgia is that a lot of the stories we've heard about voter engagement have overall been quite positive, whether it's Stacey Abrams engaging large number of voters to getting them to register, uh, women, especially black women, engaging with their communities. Do you find that there's generally, I mean, maybe this I'm uh, sort of steering away from the elections just a little bit, but do you feel that the lack of accessibility in this particular runoff election or just the fact that the Trump campaign uh, has not been willing to accommodate voters with disabilities in any fashion. Do you ever worry about the implications of that not really getting talked about a lot in the media because it wasn't making headlines in quite the same way as, let's say, Stacey Abrams was? What do you think about that? Um, I definitely think it's a problem. And part of the reason why my organization, you know, does put so much effort in on the campaign side of things. And, you know, everybody talks about, you know, can't, politicians don't keep their campaign promises. And, you know, when you actually are governing, governing is hard, as uh, Linda Hamilton says. Um, but the key thing is, is that if you can get um, a candidate engaged in talking about these issues while, while they're on the trail, it's going to be part of what they have, how they think about these issues. And so then when somebody gets elected, um, you have a, you, you've already built up a rapport. They've already made public commitments on your issues. And so um, we've seen this, and actually it was really interesting, is um, that actually some of the most important Senate candidates, um, both Republicans mm -hmm. and Democrats, in very tight races, made the effort to you know reach out to voters with disabilities. So, you know, we may not have seen that voter engagement from the Republicans at the national level, um, but in states such as Montana, Maine, and North mm -hmm. Carolina, the Republican incumbents who are very vulnerable to the cycle um, mm -hmm. answered our nonpartisan candidate questionnaire, included people with disabilities in their issues on their websites, had some accessibility features, and I think that. That is both a sign that they were fighting, that they knew they were in for a political fight, um, that they were ready to fight for every voter, and that voters with disabilities, you know, heard that message. My name is Joetha Gupta, and with me is Philip Pauly, who is the Policy and Practice Director at RespectAbility. He joins us from Arlington, Virginia. Philip, a while back, I remember reading a lot of news about attacks on the U.S. Postal Service. Um, and how a lot of people were concerned that this was uh, a very deliberate way in which the Trump administration was seeking to undermine um, the elections and prevent people from using those advanced uh, mail-in ballots. What impact would that have had, uh, would those decisions have had on voters with disabilities? Well, I think that, you know, mail-in voting is something that is actually a really um, a very valuable thing for voters with disabilities. And actually, mm -hmm. in some Western states, such as Oregon and Colorado, if you're automatically registered to vote, you automatically get a mail-in ballot. Um, I think that the loss of the option of being able to mail in your ballot was, um, you know, could potentially have disenfranchised thousands of people with disabilities. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, having the option of being able to, you know, sit down at, at your own home, if you're a person with a mobility challenge, um, you know, being able to just leave something in your mailbox to get picked up, um, that create, that removes a barrier to being um, part of the electoral process, making your voice be counted. Um, if you're a person with an intellectual or developmental disabilities, you can, you know, sit down with your parents or your guardian, or you can do your own research and, you know, make your own decisions on who you should vote for and support. And so... There's approximately uh, 60 million Americans with disabilities. We have a wide range of disability categories and different kinds. There are people who are blind. There are people who have uh, mobility impairments, as I mentioned. We have people who are on the autism spectrum, um, may have social anxiety um, that has been exaggerated because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. And the option of being able to you know, participate in democracy from you know, the safety of your own home, I think that that's very important. And you know, if people have any concerns that their ballots didn't get counted, that it creates an opportunity to be more engaged with your um, local civics um, organizations and, mm-hmm. you know, find out what barriers to accessibility still remain even now that we have been 30 years past the ADA. Mm. Ah, you read my mind because, see, I was going to, in a few questions, talk to you about the ADA, but since you brought it up, uh, given Joe Biden's uh, track record on accessibility issues, uh, he is, in a lot of ways, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, we've turned a corner to see that level of engagement from Joe Biden as a, camp, as a candidate and hopefully now as a president-elect and mentioning people with disabilities in his victory speech. That was really significant to watch and to hear. The, the ADA is now 30 years old, and uh, some people have really liked how it's all turned out. Other people feel that more could have been done. Do you think the Biden administration is looking at making changes to the ADA to make it maybe stronger, to make it uh, possible to have more rights enforced? Is that something that is being considered or talked about? Well, it is it is among the many issues that they've talked about on their website and in their disability-specific plan. Um, I definitely think that we're going to see a Department of Justice um, that is deeply committed to ensuring um, equal enforcement of the law, especially for um, people with disabilities. Where I actually really want to see the most leadership from the Biden administration is really in giving people with disabilities a seat at the table. You know, mm. they reached out to us to get our to get voters with disabilities out, um, but really. Our nation is at its best when um, people who are most directly impacted by issues have a place at the table and have uh, involvement in the decision-making process. And so what I would most like to see from the incoming Biden administration is, you know, a cabinet and political appointees who look like the length and breadth of America. Um, I think that having a senior political appointee who has specific responsibility around uh, disability issues could be a huge game changer. Um, Mm -hmm. I also think that there is, you know, still the threat of um, legislative amendments to the ADA, and I um, believe that the Biden administration will, you know, work to ensure that the rights of people with disabilities are protected. Um, and when it comes to things like employment, um, home and community-based services, I really hope that, you know, they do spend their legislative capital on trying to make sure that people with disabilities, the bills that will directly improve our lives in terms of accessing healthcare and accessing the workforce. I think that I hope that those will be high priorities. In the debate, um, or in, in one of, his, of Joe Biden's platforms, is he, he does acknowledge that Obamacare had some shortcomings. He's not talked about Biden care. 
Um, are you happy with what is on the table in terms of uh, health care or the provision of health care for Americans with disabilities? Um, I know that the Affordable Care Act um, is facing a legal challenge. So uh, how are, are voters with disabilities feeling about that pivotal and central issue? Well, I mean, all of our polling really indicates that, you know, healthcare was, you know, beyond COVID in the economy, that healthcare and protecting the access, access to healthcare, um, you know, remains a critical issue. I mean, part of it is ultimately going to depend on how this, how this, how the Supreme Court decides and whether that mm. will create a challenge for, you know, having to basically write a new law. Um, if that is going to be the case, then the disability community is going to be very involved with um, any kind of health insurance reform bill that would come up in the new Congress. At the end of the day, I think kind of part of the biggest issue for people with disabilities when it comes to healthcare access is that Mm -hmm. so often like healthcare is healthcare and health insurance is tied to your employment status. And Mm -hmm. um, that creates significant challenges and it creates a significant disincentive to work. Um, And that is a continuing problem that impacts millions of people with disabilities. A while back on the program, I had a chance to sit down with and talk to Judy Human about her book. It came out a couple months back, as you might know, and she had a fairly she had a very significant role in the Obama administration. Are you hoping that they're going to appoint somebody, um, let's say not you know not Judy Human again, but someone of the same caliber, someone who not only has um, experience in government and in advocacy, but has these deep connections with the disability community. If you had to see somebody in the White House as a representative, uh, do you have any thoughts about who that would be? Who would sort of be the point person for people with disabilities in America? Oh, that that is a wonderful question. Um, and I mean, I am um, personally acquainted with a good many of the leaders in the disability community, and I don't want to play any favorites. But I definitely think that, you know, there's no reason why you can't pick multiple people from the disability community mm-hmm. to take place. You know, pick somebody from the U.S. International Council on Disabilities to, you know, take a role at the Department of State. Um, pick someone from the National Disability Institute to, you know, go represent um, our issues in terms of um, the Department of the Treasury or the Federal Reserve. So I think that there's um, a great deal of tremendous talent um, within the disability community. And I think that, you know, a great many would be willing to, you know, serve um, the nation in any capacity. And I think what's valuable in what you're suggesting is we also avoid all the pitfalls inherent in tokenistic checkbox representation, right? Oh, well, here's our one person with a disability. Now that's taken care of. Um, and I really liked what you had to say about to the talent that the disability community offers to look at all facets of administration. Uh, coincidentally, uh, you know, Canada itself is on the cusp of change. We've just um, had our Accessible Canada Act. It was it became law in 2019, had its first anniversary. Um, Donald Trump's administration wasn't the most progressive when it came to disability issues. Hopefully, Joe Biden will be more progressive, I guess, and more inclusive of people with disabilities. Do you think there's an opportunity there? I mean, Canadians and Americans with disabilities face many of the same issues to maybe work on a bilateral level and to try and deal with issues um, that are common to people with disabilities on both sides of the border. Oh, absolutely. And I definitely think that there's, you know, critical lessons to be shared, you know, even with, you know, how different American law is from Canadian law. Um, 
several years ago, um, actually, the government of the United Kingdom actually undertook a deep study of um, the fact that many people with disabilities in the UK weren't working, and they explicitly sought out input from international um, organizations and organizations in other countries to kind of provide the perspective of what are some of the best practices that are making a difference. And I myself, many moons ago, uh, <laughs> wrote some comments and recommendations that I submitted to um, Her Majesty's government on what they could do to, you know, get the, the private sector more engaged. Um, and also, I mean, think about it this way. Some of the most important employers um, in the United States are international employers. And so, That's right. you know, companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, um, you know, have international offices. And, you know, because of the work from home revolution that has been created by COVID, um, there's certainly an opportunity for, you know, some best practices around reasonable accommodations and accessibility, mm -hmm. you know, that have worked here in the U.S. to be shared in Canada or, you know, a remote worker in Thailand or India. And so I think that there's, you know, definitely a chance for some good international cooperation around these issues. Uh, we have a few minutes left, and I want to ask you at least two things. The first being Joe Biden has always been very open about his, stu his stutter. And I'm curious about whether you think that might have played a part in his uh, deep empathy for the disability community. Here's the thing, like, and I've interacted with a lot of politicians. I've interacted with a lot of candidates for public office. And, you know, there's a lot of performative elements of being a politician. You're supposed to say certain things. You're supposed to do certain things. Um, mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, at a certain point, the mask comes off and you actually see what the substance of a person is. And I think that, you know, the fact that Biden, you know, talked about this, his stutter, he even still visibly struggles with it sometimes. I think that, mm -hmm. you know, that had to shape him. It had to change him. And I think that that is critically important. I'm going to ask you a big question, but I think it's one that a lot of people with disabilities struggle with. This sense of why bother? Nothing ever changes. You know, politicians come and go, administrations come and go. You've been involved with politics um, for a long time. Why is it important for voters with disabilities to get out there and vote, to educate themselves about civic institutions and to enforce uh, their rights under the law? There's a very common phrase in disability rights work, um, and that phrase is nothing about us without us. And at the end of the day, decisions get made, policies get implemented, regulations get written. And unless we are fighting to have a seat at the table or we have a seat at the table or we make our voices heard, there's going to be nothing without us. What I mean is, you know, unless people get engaged, nothing changes. Unless, you know, people you know, inquire about what is their local board of elections doing to promote accessible voting, that accessible voting isn't going to happen unless you have advocates that are out there fighting for, you know, change who are working to, you know, improve work policy. Workforce policy just isn't going to change. And so we as members of the community, you know, need to find our voice. And, you know, maybe it is as simple as going and attending your local city commission's <clears throat> hearings on, you know, sidewalk ramps. Um, but however we get involved, we need to get involved. And, um, you know, the more you can get involved in your local community, the more you can get involved at your state, that creates, you know, kind of the synergy and opportunity to have a bigger impact on things at the national level. Um, and then the last thing I would say is that even in this time of isolation and quarantine, you know, the issues that impact the disability community cut across 
you know, the deep divisions in the U.S. and the deep divisions across our many underrepresented communities. I thought it was really interesting in the polling that we did. It showed that, you know, issues around racial equity and racial injustice were actually, you know, kind of holding out as being, you know, about the third most important issue for voters with disabilities. Why is that? It's because disability cuts across all other racial, gender and demographic categories. And, you know, there is deep intersectionality around our experience as a community to the experiences of African-Americans to Hispanic um, voters. And, you know, the issues that impact those communities impact us because there are so many, you know, African-Americans with disabilities, so many Hispanics with disabilities. Um, and so, you know, finding that solidarity is at the end of the day, the only way that we're going to make any kind of change happen. Philip Pauly, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you very much. Have a great day. That was Philip Pauly, who is the director for programs and for policy and practice, excuse me, at RespectAbility. And he joined us from Virginia. If you'd like to catch up on any of our conversation with Philip and you missed some of it, you can find it on the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Philip Polly for being on the program. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And most of all, thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.